0: All right. Good morning, again, everybody. We're going to be in the Book of Matthew. Uh, the church calendar. We are on Palm Sunday. We're moving into the Passion Week, the Holy Week. Uh, but I've made a decision. There's there's a lot of times that we pause uh, as we move through a book of the Bible, and you all know if you've been here for a while. We've been moving through the Gospel of Matthew, and the big series is the Gospel of the Kingdom. And sometimes we pause, and I'll do a special Palm Sunday message. But I, I felt like the Lord would have us to stay in the book of Matthew. So next Sunday, I'm going to preach a message about worry and how to overcome worry. And I think that that's going to speak to our visitors who come uh, sometimes twice a year, right? And uh, I, I believe the Lord has us in Matthew 6, 25 through 34 next week. So if you invite somebody, you might tell them, Hey, the pastor's going to talk about how to overcome worry, um, which I know few of you are wrestling with uh, this morning. None of you have that issue that you worry about things, right? But anyway, it's a very common thing, and uh, there will be a traditional uh, gospel-centered resurrection uh, message at the sunrise service. But the morning messages that I preach, which will be the eight thirty and ten thirty, will be still in the Book of Matthew and we'll be dealing with how to overcome worry and what Jesus says about that. So that's uh, next Sunday, and we'll, we'll give you the whole schedule one more time as we end the service today. But we're in Matthew chapter six, 19 through 24. No one can serve two masters. Hope you have your Bible with you. Um, why don't you stand for the reading of the word if you're able. Matthew six. This is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one or to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or Mammon. Lord, as we consider your holy word, We want to have ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people in this hour. Jesus, these are your words and you are the king. You are our master. We want to have ears to submit to the master. We would all confess, Lord, that sometimes we wrestle with not just trying to serve two masters, but maybe even more than two. And you say it can't be done. We need understanding so that we can know what you're saying, who you were saying it to, and how we apply it today. So would you give us understanding? Would you give give us a heart sensitive to our king's voice that you might be glorified both in the teaching and the response to your holy word? I pray that in the mighty and matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. No one can serve two masters. When Jesus uses the word master, that's the Greek word kurios. It's spelled K U R I O S if you're a note taker. And in the ancient world, there were master-slave relationships. This existed in much of the ancient world. Israel interacted with this reality. We see that in the law of the bondservant in Exodus 21. But historians say that As much as one third to one half of the Roman world, and remember it's the Roman world when the New Testament is being written, Rome is occupying Israel at this time, about up to one half of the Roman world was in some form of servitude, a master-servant relationship. So when Jesus says no one can serve two masters, he's reaching in to his world at that time and drawing that image, which for some of us, it's hard to understand kingdom images because in the ancient world, there were really just kings and kingdoms, and that's not what we live in today. We live in a, you know, a republic. It's supposed to be a constitutional republic, based upon the constitution. Yeah, uh, but anyway. And, uh, but a form where there's a king and a kingdom and whatever the king says goes is a little bit foreign to us. And a master-slave relationship is a little bit foreign to us as well. We know the tragedy of slavery in our country, which was finally abolished, praise God. But it was a little different in the ancient world. Some say the parallel is an employee-employer relationship relationship. Uh, It may be that, but it's not quite that as well. But here's what was going on. If you were in some form of servitude, either you sold yourself into slavery to pay off a debt or you were born into slavery or whatever it might be, this was very familiar imagery. And this is what Jesus draws upon as he says, no one can serve two masters. And the synonym for master is lord. Now, if you do a little study on the word for master or Lord, and you look in the lexicons, they'll say that people could address someone as a Lord, and it would be almost like saying sir today. So if you said, nice to meet you, sir, or thank you, sir, it could have that connotation. But for our purposes this morning, to say Lord means my master. You master, I servant. You king, I'm citizen, and I'm going to do what you say. That's what Jesus is drawing upon as he says, no one can serve two lords or two masters. I would imagine with a room like this and those who are watching and will later listen to this, hopefully on Christian radio, that we all could say that we wrestle with enthroning or re-enthroning Jesus as savior and Lord of our hearts. I should say Lord of our hearts, right? Making him king every day, whether it's a Monday morning or a Friday night or a Sunday morning. But this is what Jesus is getting at. The parallel uh, word in Hebrew for the Greek word kurios is Adonai. Some of you have heard that before. The root of Adonai is Adon. If you look up that word in the Hebrew picture language, the, the word Adonai means the first judge. And Dr. Seekin says it's whoever you make your first judge or run things past as to whether you should or shouldn't do something. Adonai means my first judge. Should I do this? Should I not do this? It's all based upon running it past whoever is the God or the Lord of my life. In this case, Jesus is Lord. When you prayed, if you prayed a sinner's prayer sometime in your life history, you asked Jesus to be your Lord. I'm not sure if every every one of us knew what that meant, and if certainly we grow. You know, we, we confess Jesus as Lord and then we realize what lordship actually means. When you ask Jesus to be your Lord, when you confess him as Lord in your heart and you make a public declaration, you gotta understand what the word Lord means. It means master. It means what he says, that's what you do. Now, no one will ever do that perfectly without spot or blemish. But the goal of every Christian disciple's life is to be more and more under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's really what the gospel of Matthew is all about. It's about the kingdom of God and what it means to serve the king. I would just say to you, it's not enough to say that you prayed a sinner's prayer as a teenager and you got your security in your pocket and then you go on like you don't know who your Lord is. That should not be the case. And I'm not sure that that's really biblical uh, salvation, frankly. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. But there's an expectation that there will be fruit from a genuine transformation. If Jesus is your Lord, I would imagine that there would be a trajectory of his lordship being shown in your life. Amen? I mean, that's just a basic 101 expectation. We're saved by grace. I don't want anybody to get this wrong. Through faith, it's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. But our response to that salvation should be that we are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And again, we're all gonna grow. It's gonna take time to understand what that means. Now, our Lord is addressing the issue of wealth and how to put it in its proper perspective In verses 19 and 20, if you like structure, let me give you a little structure. Verse 19 is a command. Verse 20 is a corrective. There are only two major topics here. One is money. The second one for next Sunday will be worry. That's really all we're dealing with. And then we'll kind of just walk that out. So the first topic is wealth or mammon or money. Jesus puts it this way. Here's the command. Do not lay up or store up for yourselves, you might want to mark that for yourselves, treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's what you are not to do. That's the command. Here's the corrective. What should I do? Well, lay up or store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Now I think we all can understand what rust does to things. You know, you get a brand new shiny car, you, you buy it, you build a 10-foot perimeter around it, you, don't, you warn people on threat of death that they can't touch it, and uh, then you get that first scratch, oh no, right? And life is almost over, right? But you realize that as time goes by, the natural elements of life, whether it's a scratch or rust, you know, sometimes you look underneath a, a car and it's rusted, or if you've owned a home for a while, especially if sprinklers will hit like wrought iron fencing, you know how it rusts out. And Eventually rust you know has a way of deteriorating things that were once brand new. We, all, we get the concept of rot, rust. If you've ever had a moth get into your closet, how they get there, I don't know. <laughs> but maybe they've eaten through a sport coat or a dress or something like that. It's really a weird phenomenon that that happens. And then some of you have experienced a thief breaking into your home or your car. Some of you have had this happen more than once and stealing your stuff. And they know that if they steal up to $999 (laughs) in the state of California, it's not a big deal. That's just where we're at, as nuts as that is. And so Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't store up things that are liable to both decay, things that will wear out, if you will, and being stolen. So some, some have asked, in light of this teaching, well, what does that really mean? Does that mean I shouldn't have a bank account? Does that mean I should have no backup clothing? Does that mean I shouldn't own a home and we can walk it out from there? And some in the ancient world, some church fathers, took that literally and felt like living in utter poverty is the right response to Jesus' teaching. But I don't think that's true because Peter owned a house. Jesus stayed at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. People, out of their resources, gave to Jesus Jesus and his work and the early church sold homes and property, but sometimes they held on to it and gave it to the work of the kingdom, laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's, he even is saying that wealth is a big problem for his disciples. I'm not sure that most of them even knew what wealth was like. They were living pretty much day to day. Maybe Matthew had money, who's the author of our uh, letter or our gospel, so what is Jesus saying? The, perhaps the key uh, to Mark as a Bible student is for yourselves. Don't lay up or store up treasure for yourselves. If you are enamored so much with wealth that it becomes all about selfish gain, it's all about you building your kingdom and it's all about, you know, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. I was reading about a millionaire from years ago past. His name was Gould. And he said he, he got his millions, but he said he destroyed many lives in the process. He, you know, and some, some people are in industries where in order to get to the top, they had to step on a lot of heads, so to speak. And if that's how you got your wealth, then money is indeed your God. And obviously it's been destructive in your life. So what do we do? What what is the right way to see wealth and how we handle it? I don't think the Bible is against wealth. I don't think that Jesus is saying that living in poverty is the only way to live, and I think we're all grateful for that because we'd all be in big trouble, right? We live in a very affluent society. Most of us own a home and a couple of cars and we we have pretty much everything we need, and we don't even really worry about what we're going to eat. We worry more about where we're going to eat, and whether or not the people we're with agree that we should eat at that particular location, (laughs) even though sometimes we say we don't care, and we ask them the question, where do you want to eat? But we really have a few things in mind. So here's the thing. We're We've been learning about the Lord's prayer and we've been learning to ask for our daily bread. But in the backdrop of Jesus's sermon is a group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look at Matthew 5.20, if you're uh, new to us and you haven't been with us so far, this is one of the foundational verses of understanding Jesus's comments. I say to you, Matthew 5.20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not, Enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what we learned about the scribes and the Pharisees is that they were very religious, but their religion was all about being seen by people. Just a quick review. In chapter 6, 1 through 4, they blew the trumpet whenever they gave to the poor. They sounded the trumpet, look at me. In verses 5 through 8 of chapter 6, they prayed long prayers to impress people on the street corner for pretense, to impress. They were the hypocrites. They were the, they were the play actors. They were playing a role. And finally, they, when they fasted, they were all disheveled and they contorted their face. What's, what's wrong with you today? I'm fasting, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And Jesus over and over said, if you live that way, if your religion is about the applause of men, You have your reward in full. You have more treasures on earth. You just amassed more. Oh, how impressive. Look at the long prayer that he prayed. More treasures on earth. More treasures on earth. That's what they were doing. They were stacking earthly treasure because all they cared about was earthly applause. That's the issue here. So, Whenever Jesus was preaching a sermon, they had their little entourage there, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they weren't all bad, but they were largely corrupt. And when Jesus deals with money, you need to see that the Pharisees were lovers of money. In fact, Jesus will say in Mark 1240, good verse to write down, Mark 12, 40, 40, that they made long prayers for pretense and they devoured widows' houses. Here's the modern face of that. A preacher goes on Christian television and says stuff like this. I believe that someone right now needs to send me their social security check in the name of Jesus. And here's what has been exposed. Some Secular news organizations have exposed these ministries and they've filmed them throwing the prayer requests in the trash, never praying over them, but they certainly keep the money. And that's the modern face of what the Pharisees were doing. They were devouring widows' houses God's heart is for the orphan and the widow. That's true and defiled religion. But they were manipulating these people and saying, you need to give me your money, leaving them in want for their gain. Money had become their God. Do you see it? It almost reminds me of when President Trump is giving a speech. This may be a very poor analogy, but you know... That when he talked, especially when he was giving speeches all the time, he always pointed out the group in the back. What did he call them? The fake news. Right? Now, I'm not drawing a parallel between Donald Trump and Jesus. Okay? Please. Don't get me wrong here. This is just an illustration. Okay? He was always aware of that group. And whether he was right or wrong, whether it was all fake news or not, is irrelevant to my point. Jesus was always well aware of the group standing there. And so his words often were targeted at them. It doesn't mean they're not a warning for us, but he's probably specifically having them in mind, which I think is helpful so that we don't go to the extreme in responding to this. But I think the warning still sits there for the modern disciple. We got to be careful. Because this is what our Lord said and we live in a very prosperous land we suffer from a uh, virus called affluenza (laughs) some of you will get that later (laughs) so what do we do and here's the here's the bigger question I think for anybody who's looking at this how does one store up treasure in heaven how do you get it there What does that mean? I understand, you know, putting extra food in a pantry or saving up for retirement, that kind of stuff. But how does one store up treasure in heaven? Let me just give you a couple of things uh, to keep in mind. Number one, the book of Proverbs points out the ant as an image or an illustration. And the lazy person is told to look at the ant, Proverbs 6, 6, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, speaking of an ant, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provisions in the harvest. Ants will put away the food so they have it when they need it. When Joseph was in Egypt under uh, the Pharaoh, he recommended that they save seven years during years of plenty so that they would have food in the years of famine. And Joseph was raised up in Egypt because of that. We know how God used that even to get uh, Jacob and his children there. And so uh, it even says in Proverbs 13:22, "A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children," Proverbs 13:22. "And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous." That's an interesting verse. "The righteous," he goes on to say, has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in want." And so there is no doubt that saving, being wise, Even thinking about grandchildren is what the wisdom literature of the Bible commends. What it condemns is a miserly, selfish approach where money-making is always all about you. If you make it about taking care of your family, you make it about with an eye of future generations, that's wisdom. And I think we need to understand that so that we understand what Jesus is saying. In the book of James, James picks up his brother, half-brother's sermon points, and he is confronting rich landowners in the first century. And he says these words, this is James 5, 2 through 4. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure, exclamation point. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath or the Lord of the Sabbath. James is saying this. If you hired people and you're a rich landowner and they did all the work and you didn't pay them, you, you withheld their proper pay, You fall in the category of a person who's allowed wealth to be your master. And your wealth is described as rotted like garments, moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have rusted. Proverbs 30, verses five through nine, kind of sum up maybe perhaps the heart of a believer. He says, this is verse seven of Proverbs 30. He says, two things I've asked Of you, O God, don't refuse me either before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, Proverbs 30, verse eight. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Some people have said, ah, based upon that proverb, it's best to be middle class, (laughs) <laughs> that way, you don't have too much so that money begins to be your God and you lose focus on God or too little that you'd have to steal and thus break commandments and that kind of thing. Perhaps that's true, but I will give you the words of Paul from Philippians 4. Paul said, I know how to live in prosperity and I know how to be in want. He, he goes on, I'm paraphrasing. He said, I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, I know how to live in abundance and Paul had times of abundance in his life, certainly as a Pharisee and probably from a well-to-do family. And I know how to be in want. You can write down Philippians 4 around verses 10 through 13. I know how to do both because my focus is Christ. So whether he gives me a little or a lot, I, I, he is my focus. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so to lay up treasures in heaven, I believe is this, that when you have extra, you focus on kingdom work, kingdom worship, giving to the poor, the orphan, the widow. I'm talking about the legitimately poor now, not someone holding a sign who's playing a game. Legitimately poor people, missionaries, ministry, uh, whatever the Lord points out to you that you believe is authentically kingdom stuff. Jesus paints the picture that he'll be seated on the throne in Matthew 25. The righteous will interact with him and he'll say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me, etc. I was in prison and you came to me sick. You visited me. When did we do this? When did we do this? As much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Amen? If you want kingdom treasure you put your money, at least your excess, to kingdom work. And you obviously even give out of your first fruits. So if you look at New Testament giving, New Testament giving is not a mandatory tithe. If you want to follow the law, you need to give 23 and a third percent of your income. That's what the Israelites do because they had three separate tithes. I'm not going to argue if you want to give 23 and a third percent of your income, but that's the law. Hold oh, on. That's, that's sort of a joke. All right. <laughs> You're not under the law. But here's what the New Testament teaches. It's a free will gift. And somebody put it this way: My life, I open up my hands to God and I say, Lord, put into my life and take out as you would will. And if some something comes across my life, and let's just say it's a need of, of a missionary or Uh, recently we had a ministry we support where Corey was talking about sex trafficking all around the world. And you wanna give to that. Some of you have supported uh, individuals in different countries and you have their picture on your fridge and you, you support them to go to school and you keep food on their table. That's all kingdom treasure. And here's the good news about kingdom treasure. There's no rust. It doesn't wear out. It's protected from thieves or robbers and no one can ever take it away from you. Amen? Amen. Now sometimes we say, we get a championship, maybe we're holding up a trophy and they do the interview, no one can ever take this championship away from us but we know as sports fans, we'll be talking about next year, the (laughs) next day. Or someone might say this, I got a college degree and no one can ever take that away from me. And that's a good thing. But here's something that no one ever can take away from you. Kingdom treasure. And everything that you've done for the kingdom of God has been calculated in heaven. And when you get there, you will be rewarded for it. Your reward in heaven will be great. So let me ask you, how do you think your kingdom rewards are looking? Where is most of your focus of your life? We all have to ask that. Warren Wiersbe sums it up by saying, nowhere did Jesus magnify poverty or criticize the legitimate getting of wealth. God made all things, including food, clothing, and precious materials. God has declared all things he made good, Genesis 131. God knows that we need certain things in order to live. In fact, he has given us all things richly to enjoy. That's from 1 Timothy 6. And when Paul instructs Timothy he says this is what you should say to wealthy people in your congregation he says instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited first Timothy 6 17 through 19 or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy instruct the rich to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. We all have heard the joke, you don't see U-Hauls being pulled by hearses, right? When a coffin is in the back of a vehicle, there's no hearse being, or there's no U-Haul behind it because you ain't taking anything with you. All you're taking is what you sent ahead in kingdom treasures, amen? You're going to leave it. And your family is probably fighting over it before they put you in the ground. (laughs) And all God's people said, yeah. You know, two things that will probably happen after you're gone. One, people will eat because that's what happens. (laughs) Right? There'll be a service and people will eat because you always got to eat. Number two, it's possible that they're going to fight over your stuff. But you ain't taking it. So the question is, well, how, how do you invest what is truly eternal? How do you invest in that stuff? What's truly going to last? People are storing up wrath for the day of wrath if they reject Christ, but kingdom citizens are storing up reward in heaven when they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus told the story about a man who had so much wealth that he, instead of giving it away, he decided to build bigger barns for it And Jesus said, God said to him, Luke 12, 20, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you and now who will own what you've prepared? And then he says these famous words, Luke 12, 21, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, Luke 12, 21. Here's the heart of the matter. It's verse 21 of Matthew 6. Jesus says it, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There is a definite link between what I value the most and what I invest in, right? Wherever my treasure is, that's my heart. Wherever my heart is, that's my treasure. In the ancient world, there were really no banks, so people buried their treasure. They would, they would maybe bury it in a box, like almost you know modern treasure hunting kind of thing, but whatever you did with what you owned, it was certainly subject to decay and thieves, and obviously, probably a little less secure than we have today. But Jesus basically says this wherever your treasure is, whatever you value the most, it will capture your heart. The essence of the law, which is really what the sermon's foundation is, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind all your strength. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. And they go back and forth on them. I've kept every one of those from the time I was young. What do I still lack? Jesus knew what his God was. So he he says, well, go and sell everything you have. Give the proceeds to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, Matthew 19, 21 and come and follow me. You want eternal life? Follow me. I'm the Lord. You said you want eternal life? Follow me. When the young man heard Jesus' statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Matthew 19, 22. And Jesus let him go. That was his God. That's why Jesus said what he said. He wasn't making a blanket statement about anybody who has stuff has got to sell it all. He was basically saying, this is your God. You want to know which commandment you're breaking? The first and second, you have another God before me. You have an idol. It's money. Get rid of your idol. Repent of your idol and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. Man said, no. His face fell and he walked away in sorrow. So I think it's clear how we store up treasures on earth, how we store up treasures in heaven, what the balance is for this life, God wants us to enjoy and be wise. But we need to always be thinking about the kingdom of God. That should be the first priority of servants of Christ. And so Jesus now gives an image to bring it home. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. We often say the eyes are the window of the soul, Matthew 6, 22. If therefore your eye is clear, the Greek word means single, simplistic, healthy, not confused, sound, Functioning healthy, you could say. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is healthy or clear, your whole body will be full of light. You'll have a good eye and there'll be light. I think your whole body could represent your whole life here, not just that your body needs light to go inside of it. But if your eye is bad, if you don't have a good eye but a bad eye, poneras, the Greek word, means evil, hurtful, influenced by evil, not properly functioning, pressed down, Periled, that kind of thing. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Instead of light, there'll be darkness. And if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now this statement has confused a lot of scholars because they're like, what is Jesus talking about? Your eyes are the lamp of the body and all of that. Well, in the ancient world, they had a saying and they called it the evil eye. And Jesus's first century audience would know exactly what he was talking about. Anybody who was miserly, we would think of Scrooge. Remember Scrooge in the famous movie, right, in the book? Scrooge was a miserly guy. Aren't there enough, you know, workhouses? Aren't there enough prisons? And he would kind of do that Popeye thing. Anyway, that kind, right? And He couldn't even think of giving away a little bit of his manufactured wealth to the poor. Humbug, humbug. He was a miser. Scrooge had the evil eye, and he was full of darkness. He could care less about his fellow man. First John, John picks this up and he says, "Look, if you claim to be in the light, and you walk in darkness, you're a liar." If you see a brother or sister in need of worldly goods and you close your heart toward him, you are in darkness. This is how we ultimately see what Jesus is talking about when we walk out who we are. We will be walking in the light. We'll have the lamp of God. You know, in the ancient world, they didn't have electricity when Jesus is speaking. They had lamps and lamps were almost like a torch. So when the sun dropped, the only way you could illuminate places is to light a candle or have a lamp or kind of like a torch sort of thing or something that was a physical lamp, but you had to have oil and light it. Well, what Jesus is basically saying is this, your eyes, which usually is fixed mostly on your treasure, let the light in and the precepts of God are light. So when you're following Jesus, the psalmist famously says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, I think it's 105. So when we have the light of God directing our steps, our body will be full of truth and light and we'll, we'll do what we need to do with our resources. But if we have the evil eye, we'll be full of darkness. This is a Hebrew idiom. It's a figure of speech. Of a miser, a selfish person. Proverbs 28, 22 puts it this way A man with an evil eye, Proverbs 28, 22, hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. By contrast, a good eye is a generous person full of the light of God. Proverbs 22, 9 in the New King James says, He who has a generous or good eye will be blessed. For he gives of his bread to the poor. Proverbs 22, 9. All Jesus is simply doing is making a contrast between a generous person with a good eye and a miserly person with a evil eye. Sometimes we call it the stink eye. (laughs) That person just gave me the stink eye. (laughs) That was an evil eye. What's going on with that? Full of darkness. (laughs) That's kind of our modern expression, but I think you guys get what Jesus is saying. Psalm 19, verse eight says, the precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Listen, giving light to the eyes. Psalm 19, verse eight. Proverbs 17, 24 says, a discerning man keeps wisdom in view, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth the light of the eyes, a mark of generosity, a mark of happiness. It's like it's a life filled with the light of God. It's a person who enjoys what God has given them, is grateful, and is also a generous person. If you meet a miser, they're miserable. Misers are miserable people because they're consumed With self and their God has become the kingdom of darkness, and Satan loves it because it's all the worse in the self centered ways of man. There's another nuance to this I just want to throw out to you. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were called lamps, the uh, soldiers of David. They plead with him. The men of David swore to him and they said, you shall not go out again with us to battle that you may not extinguish the lamp of Israel. 2 Samuel 21, 17. David prayed, Lord, you are my lamp. You illumine my darkness. 2 Samuel 22, 29. Job talking about his former life before his calamity. He was a very generous man. He said, Job 29, verse three, when God's lamp shone over my head, And by his light I walk through darkness. And we learned that Job was taking care of many people before that whole calamity. And then Proverbs 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Proverbs 20, verse 27. One other expression of this is that the king, leadership, lordship, was like a lamp. And I just want to speak a word to those of you who are leaders of companies, families, et cetera. You are going to light the way of your priorities, of what you really believe. Do you believe the kingdom of God is first? That should show in your Sundays, but it should show also in your Wednesdays and your Thursdays and your Fridays. Everybody get what I'm saying? We say Jesus is Lord, but then the question becomes, what does the light of my life Really look like? What kind of vibe do I put off? And I'm not talking about impressing people here because that's what Jesus said to be careful. We don't want to have the evil eye. We want to be full of the light of God. We want to be on mission looking to see how Jesus would use us in the lives of others. Final verse. Jesus sums it up with our title. He says, No one, and that includes all of us, if you're trying to serve more than one master, you can't do it. On the authority of Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Remember the word master. Notice how extreme the language is here. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold or cleave to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, it refers to money, wealth, possessions, etc. You just can't do it. If you're trying to do it, you ain't gonna make it. And some people will say, I think I'm pulling it off. No, you're not. You're not. And I think Jesus probably has an eye on the Pharisees who say they love God, but actually their works reveal that they don't love God. They love applause. They love wealth. And Jesus is implying that they hate God that they despise the true things of the kingdom. In fact, that's why they're gonna kill the king because they don't like what he stands for because he brings the true light. They dwell in darkness, therefore, they had to get rid of him and they crucified the king. Strong words. The interests of a dual lordship life will soon conflict. I don't think that this means that you can't moonlight on your job You know, you have a day job and you moonlight at night. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is talking about 401ks or investing or anything like that. I think he's talking about who is your God? Who is your Lord? And he says, if I'm your Lord, if I'm your king and you seek first my kingdom, I'll take care of all the other things that people so often worry about. But if you try to serve two masters, you will be in a love-hate relationship. That's what Jesus says. And you won't be able to pull it off, though I think many people try. The best thing to do is make Jesus your king and he'll take care of all of the rest and you don't have to sweat it, whether he gives you a lot or a little. You just make him and his kingdom the priority. Now we're about to have of the Lord's Supper and uh, I'm gonna ask the ushers to prepare to hand that out. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke 16 and we're done. Matthew, Mark, Luke I had pointed out that uh, the Pharisees were lovers of money. In the Gospel of Luke Jesus is talking about Mammon, this topic that we've been looking at. And he repeats this phrase, Luke 16:13. He says, "No one can serve two masters, Luke 16:13. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon, Luke 16:14." Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money or mammon, were listening to all these things, and they were what? They were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. He sees through the eyes into the heart. He knows what's going on. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John Since then, the gospel of the kingdom is preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, as the elements, you guys can go ahead and start handing out the elements, and I just want to remind you that this time of the Lord's Supper is for believers. I pray that you're a believer. If you're not a believer, I pray that you'll become one, and then take of the Lord's Supper. So let me just end with the story that's at the end of Luke 16. It's familiar to most of you. Jesus tells a story about two men. It's Two men, it's a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Now the rich man owns a lot of stuff and he feasts sumptuously every day. He has catered meals come in. He has fine purple and linen on. He has his buddies over every day. And at the gate of his estate lay a poor man named Lazarus. Who, he's full of sores, he's sick, he's malnourished. And the only company that he has at the gate of the rich man Is dogs. They come and lick his sores. Dogs are the greatest creatures on the planet. All God's people said cats are definitely in question. (laughs) All right, but we leave that for the leave it alone because it could divide the church. All right, but anyway, so here's the thing. So both men die in the story that Jesus says, he shares. The poor man ends up in Abraham's bosom next to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. The rich man ends up where? In Hades and torment. And he's crying out that someone will just put some water on his tongue. And he can see Abraham across the barrier and Lazarus there. So he begins to have a dialogue with Abraham and Jesus is telling the story. And he, and he says to him, Father, Abraham do you hear those words he's a Jew father abraham have mercy on me now this man is a Jew who was wealthy who lived up the high life at the expense of the poor man at his gate who do you think the story is about probably a rich pharisee who they they might conclude hey if i was religious impressed people and wealthy and I had a bunch of material possessions. I'm blessed by God, right? And since I'm a Jew, I'm going right into uh, heaven because I have the right lineage and all of that. And Jesus is like, no, hear the story. The rich man's under judgment. The poor man is being comforted. Father Abraham, if I can't get out of here, send someone to my five brothers. Maybe there are five other Pharisees. Lest they end up here, they think they're good. They think they're blessed. They don't understand your ways. Please send somebody. And the response of Abraham, famously echoing through the corridors of time, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is, do you see the audience here? Do you see how our misgivings about what God actually honors, our Uh, definitions of blessing and what the kingdom of God is all about could be so upside down. Our culture uses the words blessed and all that stuff and often comforts themselves in I'm fine with God. I'm sure so-and-so is good and looking down and all of that stuff at us right now. But folks, we can't have this wrong. We can't serve two masters. Amen? Amen? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day, every knee will bow. And I pray that you have bowed your knee. Father, thank you so much for this precious congregation. Thank you for their, their heart, for the kingdom, their heart, for the gospel. Thank you for this moment in time that we've been able to celebrate baptisms and Brianna's mission. And now, Lord, to come to your table, we're so humbled and grateful. Because this piece of matzah, this juice represents your pierced, striped body, your precious blood to purchase my entrance into the kingdom of God. It is by grace, through faith. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. Thank you that you paid the ransom in full. But Lord, I do want to do something with the gifts that you've given to me. So as we remember the cross, as we remember our suffering, Messiah, the one who laid down, who became poor that we might become rich, who laid down his life for us and resurrected to defeat death. Lord, I pray, teach me your ways and teach me how I can make you Lord of my life and the things that I do in my everyday walk. Help me, Lord. We all feel a weakness. We all feel often pulled in multiple directions. Would you give us the mercy we need just to do it a day at a time? We don't need to stress too much about six months from now. We're just gonna orient our hearts towards the king and the kingdom right at this moment. Just wanna take a moment, if you've not met Jesus as your king, as your Lord, this would be a great time to confess him uh, leading into this wonderful Holy Week and thinking about eternal things. You don't have to have a perfect prayer. It's about repenting of sin, and making Jesus Lord, setting him aside as Lord in your heart. He's already the Lord, but you need to make him your Lord. Maybe you've been wayward. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been trying to serve two or three or four or five masters. This would be a great time to come back to your Lord who loved you so much. He, he laid down his life for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. Would you stand for the last song? You got something? Right, Shane was sharing with me that uh, Dave Richards is not doing well. And if you guys know Dave in Maryland, we've been praying for Dave. And I just want to tell you that I go way back with the Richards family, um, coaching JT in baseball and getting to know this wonderful family. And, and Dave told his wife, his one desire was to be in church on Easter Sunday. He's, been, he's battled cancer and... Um, I think this is his third round with cancer. And he's been an amazing example through it all. But we just, we just found out he's in the ICU and, and not doing well. And he may not, he may not make it. But I, I just want to take a moment as we close. We will sing the final song. I know Shane's going to try to get over there right away. But let's just pray for Marilyn and the family. Oh, God. <clears throat> The relationships we make along this journey are precious. We know that even at this moment you can heal Dave. And we're going to ask in faith that you would extend your mighty hand and heal his body. I know he believes in you. I know Marilyn does. I know the entire family has faith. But whatever you do, Lord, you're a good father, and we're just going to ask that your mercy would be all over the situation. Whatever way this goes. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and eternal life. And I pray that um, the Richards family would be experiencing extra measures of your grace as they walk through this. And I pray that your presence will be very tangible to them. Lord, I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.